0: Welcome to episode 31 of Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible, Calvary's Companion Podcast to our Read the Whole Bible in a Year plan.
1: Our readings for this coming week are going to be from mostly from Jeremiah, several portions of Jeremiah. Also we're going to be reading 2nd Kings 22 through the beginning of 24, 2nd Chronicles 34 through the beginning of 36. The books of Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah are all in this section as well. The last half of the 7th century BC is one of the most significant periods in world history. A lot happened in 50 years. At a time when both the ancient cultures of Greece and Rome were beginning to stretch and grow into the empires they'd become, a frenzy of activity was happening in and around Judah, and a tidal wave of change was coming. Nahum prophesied that change. Even though it was the largest it had ever been and had been the greatest world power for the last 300 years, Nahum predicted that the Assyrian Empire was about to fall. He predicted that Nineveh, its capital, would be humiliated and would fall and its people be killed. Around the time that Nahum is preaching, two remarkable men were born. Josiah was born in 648 and Jeremiah the prophet was born just a short time later. Josiah became king at just eight years old after his father, Ammon, was assassinated. During the first few years of his reign, not much changed. The pagan idolatry of Josiah's father and grandfather were still being practiced, and it was during these first few years that Zephaniah preached about the immorality and faithlessness of God's people. Then in 632, at 15 or 16 years old, perhaps because of the preaching of Zephaniah or prophets like him, Josiah repents of his father and grandfather's wicked ways and begins to turn the nation back to the Lord. He reopens the temple, which had been closed by his grandfather Manasseh, and discovers the book of the law, which was probably the book of Deuteronomy. It's unlikely that all of the Torah had been lost or become unknown in so short a time, but it had not taken long for the specifics of Yahweh's expectations of his people to be forgotten or the blessings and curses at the end of the covenant be lost to the memory of God's people. When the law is discovered, Josiah grieves at what he knows to be the coming wrath of Yahweh and leads his people in repentance. They celebrate the Passover with a fervor that had never and would never again be shown by God's people, and Yahweh relents and promises that he will not bring disaster upon Josiah's kingdom during his lifetime. Now on the world stage, Judah's part of an area that was between Assyria to the northeast and Egypt to the southwest, and Assyria had been a cruel and wicked tyrant for more than a hundred years. But it was falling. Both Egypt and Babylon were rebelling with some success, but the king of Assyria, Ashurbanipal, kept his empire together and strong. But he died in 627, the same year that Jeremiah was called. When the old king died, there was a civil war among his heirs, which Egypt and Babylon took advantage of and rebelled. Sensing weakness, all the surrounding empires rose up together to defeat Assyria completely, with Babylon leading the charge. Assyria, in a moment of desperation, calls out to Egypt for help, promising them lands if they will rescue the old empire from the newcomers. And Pharaoh Necho II accepts and heads up to Nineveh to help their old enemy. King Josiah was worried that Necho might be successful and tries to head the Pharaoh off before they can reach Nineveh. And he dies in the battle in 609. It does not take long for Judah to return to its idolatry. And in in the wake of this reversion to paganism, Habakkuk begins preaching. And he's told by Yahweh that he will soon use Babylon as his tool to punish and perhaps even protect his people. Through all this, the prophet Jeremiah continues to prophesy. His long ministry will be difficult, painful, and met with a great deal of resistance. As you read him, you get a sense of the tragedy and sadness Yahweh has that Josiah's children do not share their father's righteousness. Josiah is succeeded by Jehoahaz, who is then carried off to Egypt and replaced by his younger brother Jehoiakim. Neither of them follows Yahweh, and Jehoiakim's attempt to harm Jeremiah are part of our readings for this week. In the reading, notice again the themes of the absurdity of idolatry, the way that breaking the covenant is described as idolatry and this, or as adultery, and the stern warnings about the future. Know that what you're reading is Judah on the precipice just before she falls into exile. The prophet Nahum is known to be the the person who is prophesying about the fall of Nineveh. And of course, there's some debate as to whether Nahum was written before or after the fall of Nineveh. But it's my opinion he was written, he wrote his, his prophecy beforehand. But what's really interesting is a lot of the language that Nahum uses is exactly the same as the language that's used in Isaiah about Babylon. And so what I think is happening in Nahum chapter 1 is we're being shown that Nahum isn't just saying that Assyria is going to fall. He's saying that every empire that is wicked and stands against Yahweh's purposes will fall. And Assyria is an example of that truth, that the justice-giving God will not allow wickedness to stand forever. And even the most powerful of empires that seems like it will last forever can be brought to heal by the, the work of the Lord. And he does picture what happens to Assyria as the work of Yahweh. Babylon is being used as that tool. Habakkuk also sees that. So Habakkuk is this minor prophet who starts out his book. He's, he's prophesying after Josiah has, has died or right around that time. Again, not everyone in, in Josiah's kingdom um, repented and turned to the Lord. But he's looking around all this wickedness around him. And he just cries out, God, why have you let this happen? And God answers. He complains and God answers. He complains again and God answers again, which is both gutsier than I would ever be. If I complain and Yahweh answers me, I will be quiet. <laughs> but also, um, it just reveals what prayer is supposed to be with us, a, a willingness of Yahweh to hear. But then he, Yahweh says, I'm, I'm going to use Babylon. Um, to bring judgment for wickedness. And Yahweh or Habakkuk has a problem with that because Babylon is also evil. And so as you read Habakkuk, I just want you to sit with that that Yahweh is using Babylon as a tool. He's going to use a tool to to judge unrighteousness and wickedness, and also Babylon's going to be used as a tool to to protect God's people. Um, as they are carried away into exile, they're preserved in that sense. As all this tumultuous all these tumultuous events around the their, their home are going to happen. God's people are protected for a time um, in Babylon. And then, of course, Zephaniah has a, a message of his own. But what, what's neat with, it's, it's true of Habakkuk, it's true of um, Zephaniah and many of the minor prophets, is judgment comes at the beginning, but at the end of the book is are these beautiful pictures of future hope that beautiful psalm at the end of Habakkuk, the beautiful picture of God's goodness and love and mercy at the end of Zephaniah. And the promise that any judgment that comes is temporary because Yahweh is a God who loves and his desire for his people is to repent. And so they're going to go through something hard. The exile is going to be awful. Um, they use language that talks about like the undoing of creation when, when they're talking about the, the exile it's it's that severe. Their world is coming undone. But after that is a promise of redemption and restoration and hope. And it's beautiful.
0: It, it's It's good. I mean, I know that and we've we've talked about this many times as we've done this uh, journey through the Bible, but just we know that not everybody is stimulated by historical background. Sorry, and stuff I'm like that. nerdy. No, 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 no. I was that's not a criticism of your summary. I thought that was great. Because like in order to really read the Bible and understand, you do need to have at least a general mm-hmm. kind of working understanding of what is happening in the world around them. Especially because, you know, these are products of their time and place. And so, you know, uh Jeremiah isn't prophesying with us particularly in mind, right? So in, right. you know, 2,500 years, people who are completely removed from this political situation will need to know, you know, so they just don't, mm-hmm. they don't include any of those, like the most obvious facts about their day and age are not included because they're the most obvious right. facts, you know, and and so it is helpful to, to, to as we're able to investigate from other sources or from from just the historical records and kind of piece together which I think the chronological plan, we've we've kind of gone back and forth. Sometimes we gripe about it, yeah. but sometimes I, really I think it here. Yeah, yeah. But sometimes it really has been useful to kind of been able to to track these different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, some of these things are are, uh, I mean Jeremiah especially is kind of scrambled chronologically. Yes, you know, and we saw this in the reading. We kind of hopped around a little bit, yeah. and I don't know if anyone has any good. In the history of biblical interpretation, does anyone have a handle on why, Jeremiah, the book, is arranged? It was
1: a choice that Baruch made. Yeah, it's just
0: arranged the way it is because it's not sequential in time. Um, But anyways, that just means that some of the timing of some of these things is a little fuzzy, but I think they're doing a good job of reconstructing the...
1: Yeah, the so the reason for that you know, that difference or that is probably because they're writing on scrolls, right? And so Baruch mm-hmm. doesn't have like well, and the what king we have. burned a bunch of them, right? <laughs> or at least one of them. But as he's writing the things he wants to get down, and then later thinks, "Oh, I need, I want to put this in between." You yeah. can't, right? You can't do that, right? And yeah, so it's, it's, it's a, one after the other. A
0: uh, word processor. You know, I think it's also I I appreciated your summary as well. Just the reminder the reminder of like the social location of the people who wrote the bible Mm
1: -hmm.
0: you know that judah was not that that judah was the underdog really throughout its history yes i mean david and solomon were a brief high point and then everything from then they've basically been the underdog Even between Judah and the Northern Kingdom, even the Northern Kingdom was bigger and more powerful and richer and had better connections, you know, to the Uh other countries and and all these different things. Yeah. Just to consider, I think, I think part of the reason why that's important, that's been important for me to think about is that, you know, in our recent history or just in the history of, of Western Christianity, like the people reading and using the Bible have generally been the ones running the societies, you know, yeah. and then showing up in other people's countries, you know, and telling them what to do based on the Bible. Whereas for the people who actually wrote the Bible, they were the ones who were being colonized and conquered and and forcibly removed and, and all those different yeah. things. And again, I just think that that's, I think that's important for us as as students, long-standing students of the Bible. But honestly, I think that's going to be an important piece moving into the future you know, as our broader society and culture de-Christianizes, one of the assumptions that they make about the Bible is that it was written by people who just wanted to control everybody else and tell everybody else what to do, because often it's been used that way, right. you know. But that the truth is, is that it was not. It was written by people that, that were removed from the centers of power and, and everything else. And in some ways, well, let I me mean, think how to put this. In some ways it's an endorsement of Yahweh's power and history that these puny little nerds writing these prophecies and poems yes. in some forgotten corner <laughs> of the world are now the most uh, influential authors in human history <laughs> uh-huh Of course the effect of that has been both good and bad because right. again the ways that the church and 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 uh, uh, Christendom has, has used these things. No. But uh, anyways, something I, ter- just, I was some- just struck by that thought as you were summarizing. Yeah.
1: There's something terrible about the work of the oppressed being used by oppressors to justify their oppression. And that mm-hmm. has happened in the history of the church. And it's awful.
0: And of course, you know, as we've walked through Kings and Chronicles, and we see this even in the Jeremiah stories. I mean, it's not like all the Judeans were like these innocent, you know uh lambs right i mean they right. were also oppre- you know mm-hmm. oppressing and, and mistreating and these are the different things no one is righteous no not one mm-hmm. uh so kind of going with starting with kings so as i kind of prepared my notes and questions i went just canonically yeah. through the readings not necessarily with the the uh, the reading plans so thinking think about second kings and these, this story of Josiah and when it tells us that they rediscovered or that they found the book of the law, like what how did they lose track of the book of the book of the law? What is it describing to us in uh, the second King's readings?
1: Yeah. so um, Josiah's great grandfather Hezekiah, had during his time, the temple was in full use. you know the scrolls were were used, the law was known, the priests were doing Yahweh priestly work in watching over the temple and obeying the covenant. But Manasseh, Hezekiah's son, when he becomes king, he closes the temple. And one of the effects of that is that the the scrolls that are kept in the temple are not not as easily accessed or not available to God's people. Now, a long period of time goes between then and Hezekiah. Because Manasseh was king for... Decades. Decades, yeah. Yeah. And so you can imagine how the idea of the story of God's people and his expectations would stay among the people, but they're being bombarded also with all these stories and expectations from idol- idolatry and pagan worship. The priests are not just doing Yahweh priestly duties. they Some of them are probably also doing that, but they're also taking on these other stories of other gods. And it just does not take long for knowledge of the Bible to disappear. I mean, imagine parents, if you just did not teach your children anything about scripture, they didn't teach their children anything about scripture, what their children might be able to know offhand. It would mm-hmm. be uh, little bits of story that had well, been
0: kept. I mean, you know, I think we're seeing that unfold. And there you go. That's literally what's happening in America our world. right now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, uh, so when Josiah reopens the temple, because he's he's become convicted, and and again, I love the idea, we have no evidence, but I love, I mean, Zephaniah was in Jerusalem, so I love the idea that Josiah was just kind of captured as a young man by Zephaniah's preaching, or another prophet like him, and, and repented, and then led his people imperfectly in repentance. And what I mean by that is, of course, not every person in Judah repents and follows Yahweh, but when the king is doing it, a whole lot of the, the kingdom is, is following suit. And so when they reopen the temple and they're going through and they're just kind of inventorying everything, trying to get the temple ready for use and worship, there is a, a worker or a, um, what's his name, who finds the scroll. Um, I think it's one of the priests or it's the high priest. Hilkiah, it? yeah. yeah. Um, Hilkiah, the high priest, says to his secretary, you know, I found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. And so then there's this like train, you know, the, the secretary reads it and then he takes it to the King and the King reads it. And the King is, is just heartbroken as he hears what I imagine is the book of Deuteronomy. And especially as you get to the end, the, Mm -hmm. the, the blessings and and curses and curses. and Josiah looks around at what is happening to, to Israel or to Judah. And he says, I'm, we're seeing this unfold. Like you're reading me. About curses, and they are describing our nation as it exists right now, mm-hmm. and so they they repent and beg Yahweh to not not send calamity, and Yahweh does relent, as he does when repentance happens.
0: Shifting a bit over to the chronicle, read Chronicles readings. One of the things I noticed, and uh, we didn't really. Well, maybe because since we're preaching kind of on Sabbath and Sabbath is celebration, but it's just, I was just struck by the emphasis on the Passover, especially, Mm -hmm. but just the emphasis on festival time, on on the festivals and chronicles. And I just wondered if if you had noticed that in our, our kind of our rereading of chronicles and if you had any thoughts about why it would have been important to the chronicler to dwell on these. You know, because he oh. takes the same stories about these festivals and kind of expands them, them quite up. a yeah. bit. You know, yeah. it's just like why the focus on, and maybe it's the pa- something about the Passover specifically, or just more generally, why the focus on the uh, the, yeah, fe- the biblical festivals in the Chronicles.
1: Josiah's function, Hezekiah's two, in in Chronicles is interesting because it is it's like when you're you're throwing stones and there's these skips on the water. We get these points of contact of righteousness between or in judas kings in between unrighteous ones Mm -hmm. and near the end we have two in relatively close proximity to each other righteous kings more righteous than any since david and solomon and it's this 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 how do i put it it's it's this demonstration that yahweh has not abandoned his people right his long suffering of their disobedience and it's, it shows that it, all it takes is repentance, genuine repentance. And we just see that Yahweh relents in the calamity. I think this isn't quite answering your question, but I think one of the purposes of that is as Chronicles is being written, as Yahweh's people are coming back from the exile, that is a promise to them that if they will just obey the covenant, Yahweh will not hurt them or allow them to come to harm like he had in the past. He will not punish them. Um, and so even Josiah, after the, the punishment was already in process, Yahweh relents because of, of Josiah's repentance. The reason for the, the focusing on the Passover is because the Passover is the summation of the Exodus story, the, the celebration of Yahweh's deliverance of his people, mm-hmm. which is what was so desperately needed in these times. Mm. I mean, if you we live in America and so we are just not accustomed to the idea that there is a bigger, Badder, sadistic, psychotic nation (laughs) near us that is thinking that could at any time invade and just level us to the ground. Like we don't know what it's like to live in that kind of existential fear. Mm -hmm. And they did. And so, one of the reasons for the Passover being so important to this time is it was a promise that as he had delivered his people from Egypt, the most powerful empire in the world at the time he could deliver them from anyone else surrounding them. And I think that's a, a major part of the emphasis here. And it's, I mean, just all the themes, the themes of of fidelity to the covenant that are part of Passover, the themes of deliverance in salvation, of faithfulness of God's people, uh, all of, you know, there's covenant, the the, the blood on the doorway from the mm-hmm. Passover story is, is an entrance into a, a symbolic of an entrance into covenant. I mean, it's just, all that is happening and all that is needed by God's people as they return to their land from exile. And so I think that's why.
0: Mm-hmm. No, no, I think that all makes sense. And I mean, I think you you, you kind of see a, a festival emphasis carrying into Ezra and Nehemiah, which we'll get mm-hmm. more into here in a couple of weeks. And I mean, even by the time of Jesus, it seems like, I mean, the other festivals are mentioned in the gospels, but like Passover seems to be the, the major one you know and obviously Jesus died during the Passover festival so that yes. has a massive you know significance <laughs> to it um but uh and we don't know you know i mean the the history is kind of foggy looking back like even before Josiah's time you know like what what were what was considered quote unquote the most important festival you know or the the highlight and, and they may not have thought of things like that, but it seems definitely by Jesus's time, it was the Passover was the big one. And you know, the other ones were important too, but it was the Passover that had the most significance, which I think makes sense also. In, and again, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but in Jesus's day and age, you know, f- for the same reasons you just said, for the Passover to be very significant, mm-hmm. just in terms of its, its message of, of Yahweh's rescue and, and them being brought together as, as people just like so we're we'll be in Jeremiah for a while in different you know as we take different pieces and Jeremiah is is very different than Isaiah and yeah. also different than Ezekiel and so I I wondered if you could just speak briefly hmm. in just kind of the big picture sense of like how is Jeremiah I mean he's he's a prophet so it's still prophecy he's prophesying to Judah so it's the same as the other two but just in terms of his style or just what what to yeah. kind of expect as we read Jeremiah what are some of the big Differences, just the distinctives between maybe just Jeremiah and Isaiah, since Isaiah is the one that we've we've read through.
1: That's a good question. So for this coming week, there are several passages in Jeremiah that really show us a little bit about the personality and struggles of the prophet, Mm -hmm. like the internal struggles. I don't think that any of those are in our reading for this coming week. I think those are all coming next week. Yeah. But what you can expect from Jeremiah here in this week's readings is. We see uh, in the calling, there's some hints of what Jeremiah is going to struggle with. In Jeremiah 1, uh, so Isaiah is told, you know, you're going to go and you're going to preach to people that aren't going to listen. And and Jeremiah has the same experience. He's going to preach to people that aren't going to listen. But there's this um, very, I don't know, this assurance of power and protection that's given to Jeremiah by Yahweh. You know, as he's as he's doing the as he's being called, Yahweh says, you know, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. In other words, like every single part of your life, I am involved in, and you are on purpose. And I think that's gonna that's gonna be important for Jeremiah because he's gonna really struggle with the way that his life goes, especially in his first few decades of just um, after. After, um, I'm sorry, not his first few decades, his middle and late decades after Josiah is gone and there's just resistance to his preaching and messages. And then we get these these very powerful verbs that Yahweh uses. You know, I'm going to use you to uproot and tear down, destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. We don't get a sense that Isaiah is a tool being used by Yahweh to affect contemporary change. In the way that mm-hmm. it does seem like Jeremiah is used as a tool by Yahweh to effect temporary change. In fact, a lot with Isaiah, we read now, we call it the fifth gospel. Right. It has oh, so many messages of futuristic hope. And Jeremiah isn't without those. But mm-hmm. the, the emphasis in Jeremiah is on, I mean, a call to repentance because of, of social evil but also just a challenging to kings. Um, mm-hmm. He is a, a preacher to the, the wealthy, and not only the wealthy, but the the common as well. But he interacts with kings, and it, aside from Josiah, it does not, does not go well. Yeah. I don't think we have any sense with that Isaiah is ever really imprisoned or mm-hmm. that there's any I mean, harm.
0: Traditionally speaking, he's supposed to have been sawed in half, right? Yes.
1: I mean, he was martyred, yes. Yeah. but uh, Well, that but was, I mean, that's not... That was the Hebrews references
0: something, but it it doesn't necessarily. Isaiah didn't actually write
1: about his own being sawed in half, but that's because he was (laughs) done writing afterwards, I suppose. (laughs) Jeremiah, however, is is able to either write or is able to have written about him um, a lot of the things that he endures, and that's because Baruch, who seems to really, I mean, think very highly, be very moved by Jeremiah writes faithfully about him, not just Jeremiah's own sermons, but then these stories about Jeremiah. He just kind of compiles them for us. Mm-hmm. And so it's a it's a beautiful book. It's also a book where the in the parts that we're not going to get to this week, and I don't want to steal too much from coming weeks, but the pain of the prophet is mm-hmm. just so clear. Yeah. I mean he 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 is friendless or feels friendless. <laughs> um yeah. He is he is betrayed. He's hated. He's threatened. He's harmed. He's thrown into prison. There's people out for him to kill him. Like he lives a rough life, and it's a long rough life mm-hmm. that eventually ends with him being kidnapped. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's where Jeremiah's um, biography that we know of ends. Right? He's taken by people that he he told not to not to leave yeah,
0: to go to Egypt. Yeah, to flee flee to Egypt. Uh, well, and you mentioned Baruch there, and so.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about who, who is that? So Baruch, son of Neriah, is a man that we first meet, not in our readings for next week. I think he's a few chapters earlier introduced. It has something to do with Jeremiah buying a field. Um, but we we meet him in chapter 36, which is part of our readings for, uh, for today or for this week. And he is a scribe of Jeremiah's. And so what he does is he, he writes down what Jeremiah dictates. So we get the impression that Jeremiah is a preacher, not a writer. And that may be the case for all we know for all the prophets, that, that they're not usually writing their own works, but someone is dictating or they're dictating to someone who writes them down or someone is listening to them preach and writing them down. And so what happens with Baruch at the beginning here is he's given a, um, a prophecy for Jehoiakim, if I'm not mistaken, because Jeremiah is no longer allowed to go to the temple. And so Baruch goes to the temple and he prophesies. It's a prophecy of judgment and a call to repentance. And people respond and they take him to some leaders of the kingdom. Those leaders listen and they they tell him to go and hide with Jeremiah while they take his scroll and read it to the king. And as he's reading it to the king, as these people are reading it to the king, the king is cutting off parts of it and throwing it into the fire. But Baruch is this man who, who writes down what Jeremiah dictates, and then he seems to collect other stories about Jeremiah, and he just kind of compiles them into what we know about um, or as the, the book of Jeremiah. What Baruch, or I'm sorry, what Jehoiakim threw into the fire, Baruch rewrites down, Jeremiah redicts, and, and Baruch rewrites down. And there's several other stories that Baruch just kind of includes. But what's really neat about Baruch is there's this moment, um, I don't remember the chapter, it might be in 36. There's a temptation I think for a lot of us to want to become great, to become well-known. Um, and Baruch's name is certainly in one of the most popular prophets in the Bible. I mean, his name has been preserved, but, but he's, he's told not to seek great things for himself. In other words, that that he is to be a, be a humble man um, who will be kind of obscure, and that appears to be what he's done. And so we don't actually know very much more than what I just said about Baruch, if I'm not mistaken, in part because Yahweh literally tells him, mm-hmm. don't seek great things for yourself. Well, another... Neat little. I mean, this is not a Bible
0: fact. It's just it's adjacent. About Baruch is that I think maybe 20 years ago now, 15 years Mm -hmm. ago, they found a a wax seal Mm -hmm. with the name Baruch, son of Nariah. Now there could be others named that. I mean, you know,
1: well, Baruch, son of Nariah, would be a pretty rare duplicated Mm -hmm.
0: name. And uh, so it's probably, if it's a genuine artifact, then it's it's likely the, a wax seal that Baruch poured. And it even has the uh, the rim of his thumbprint on it, because they would have had like a, a wild, little piece yeah. of ivory or something to press the wax to, to form the seal. And so his thumb went down on the, the wax uh, as long, along with the, his seal. So there's just this little bit of a thumbprint imprint of one of the men who wrote the Bible. It's uh-huh. just really cool. That is
1: really cool.
0: <laughs> there is some debate whether or not that's a genuine artifact or not, sure. and it's still open, but if it's if that's a real thing, that is that's just really neat. Yeah, it is. <laughs> this has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's.